Ramble. I don't really like doing chores around the house, I'm going to be honest with you, and I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time, and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized, and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging, and that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me, there is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for her job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters. Especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try audible now free for 30 days visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 that's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try audible free for 30 days bada bing bada boom welcome to this week's main episode of rotten mango i'm your host stephanie sue and we're just gonna jump right in it was almost closing day not of a house although that would be a huge accomplishment for most He is not like most people. He is the heir to the Yogi Food fortune. They were about to sell Yogi Foods to the massive multinational food conglomerate General Mills for close to $1 billion. There was a billion dollars on the table that week. It was almost closing day. But before the deal can be closed and the papers can be signed, he goes missing. The heir to the fortune goes missing the billionaire man from the get-go i mean the questions are endless did someone kidnap him for ransom are we going to be expecting a demand for a bag of cash from the deal is it a disgruntled employee of yogi foods maybe it's a business partner who feels scammed who feels cheated out of this deal maybe maybe it's inside the family maybe the heir knew too much about the company maybe someone had to shut him up before the deal fell through something was wrong with the deal But what's up with that private detective that was following him the weekend before he vanished? Has anyone seen the videos the PI took of him? What's on those videos? Well, what about that website that he was frequenting every day, the chat forum? Well, nothing feels legal about that chat forum. But the most pressing question of all was how did one of the richest men in the country end up on the side of the road with his limbs dismembered and stuffed in bright blue trash bags? As always, full source notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but there is a really good docu-series on this on Netflix called Once Upon a Crime, Elise Matsunaga. This is probably one of the most underrated Netflix docu-series of true crime that I've ever seen in my life. I mean, every single second of it was jam-packed, fast-paced. It was... I don't want to say amazing because that sounds so strange, but it was really, it was an invigorating watch. That's what I can say. So let's get into the story. But before we do, I just want to apologize for skipping a mini-sode very abruptly. That was out of nowhere. I um, I caught hand, foot, mouth disease from my 10-month niece, which if you don't know what that is, don't Google it because essentially your hands, your feet, and the back of your mouth, like where your tonsils are, just have blisters, open sores, blisters for days. I couldn't type. I couldn't even talk. I couldn't even swallow water. It was probably the most painful thing I've ever experienced. So that's why there was no mini-sode, but we're back on schedule and we're somewhat healthy. So this is good. It's like a it's a holiday miracle. So let's jump right into the story. There's two people involved in this one. And these two people are very fascinating. The case takes place in Brazil. And I just want to like just a forewarning before all of this is every single person involved in this, not even just like the victim and the perpetrator, but all of the witnesses, all of the police, the prosecutors, even the friends of the victim 
they're wild. Like just everything that comes out of their mouth, you're like, what did they just say? Why would they just say that? That doesn't make any sense. So just be warned, put your pants on because it's going to get crazy. Let's introduce the two main people of today's story, Alizi Matsunaga. Now, there's not much on either of these people's childhoods, but what I can gather from Alizi is that she grew up in this super small town. They didn't have a paved road leading up to her house, so it was really in the middle of nowhere is kind of how she describes it. In the beginning, it seemed like they were doing their best to be a wholesome family. Alizi with her parents, her sister and Elise remembers even as a young kid they would be waiting around for Santa to come drop off these presents they'd be waiting every day Christmas would come around no presents what the hell is this they would wake up no gifts anywhere and her mom would pull the kids aside and tell them well of course not Santa Claus got lost we're in the middle of nowhere he's not great with directions I mean of course he's not gonna be here of course there's no presence it's not because you guys are bad people or bad kids or he forgot about you he just got lost he doesn't have ways and it seemed like you know they were trying to live this normal cute life albeit they had a lot of financial stress and all of these things but then out of nowhere Elise's dad just packs up and leaves like just leaves the house, buys on out of here because Elise's mom can't find work in their small town. She has her parents watch over the kids and she ventures to a large town to find work as a housekeeper. So when she comes back for the kids years later, she's not alone. She's like, meet your new dad. This is my new husband. And this is going to be your stepdad. And we're all going to live together. No questions asked. It's going to be a beautiful family. Forget your biological dad. Just pretend it's him. So he wasn't the best. Now, the kids were not stoked, but what can they do? I mean, they're forced to live with this man. So they did notice um, some alarming signs as they get older. The first thing was that one day Elise noticed that the locks in the house had been changed. Not the outside locks, but particularly the bathroom lock. Now, I mean, it didn't make sense. She walked into the bathroom and now she can't lock it from the inside. That's a little strange. Why would someone replace the bathroom lock and make it so that I can't even lock it? That's the whole purpose of a bathroom lock. And more strange than that is that now whenever she tried to use the restroom, her stepdad would just barge in and would say, whoa, oops, I didn't see you coming in here. I didn't know you were using the restroom. But she's like in her early teens. You know, she's not thinking this guy's creepy. She just feels off about it. When she turns 15, one day she's showering and there's this slanted window in the shower and she notices something like rustling outside, rustling in the leaves of the tree. And she's like, what the heck is going on? And she looks closer. There's a creep watching her. A creep had climbed onto the tree to peer through her shower window and watch her shower. So she freaks out. She grabs the nearest towel. She's trying to run out of that bathroom as fast as possible she had no idea that it was her stepdad but he didn't know that she didn't know so he climbs down from this tree runs into the house slams into the bathroom and you know she's naked she's afraid and he drags her down and assaults her she said that the feeling was she wanted to rub her skin until it bled. She felt like it was all her fault. She was ashamed. She was so angry with God that she had to experience this. So that night she packs up all of her things and she's gonna run away from home. Mm -mm, I'm not staying. She borrows $50, grabs a knife, decides, I can never go back. There's no going back now. But when she tries to run, she's preyed upon by other guys. Can you believe it? Like, I mean, so she's walking down the road and these guys are stopping their cars like, hey, get in the car. Why are you alone? How old are you? Just strangers. Some of them tried following her in their cars, asking her, come on, just get in. Come on, just I know you want to get in. She was so terrified. One man did offer her to stay the night at his place and she trusted him. So she did. And thankfully, he was a good person. And the next morning, CPS showed up to get her. She was terrified of going back to her family house. I mean, she never told her mom what happened. She didn't tell the police. The only thing that she did was to ask to stay with her aunt from then on. And her aunt was the only person in her life that she felt like would be there no matter what. Now, the rest of her years that Elise's in this small town, she just wouldn't stop daydreaming. This girl's trying to get out. She's, she, she would always say, this town is too small for me. I just don't like it. And by the way, Elysia is beautiful. She's got this blonde hair, like beautiful. I, I think they were blue, like striking eyes. I mean, truly, she looked like a dream, like an angel is what people describe her. She'd always tell her aunt, I just want to get out of here. I want to get out of here. And her aunt would say, well, you need to study. That's the only way you're going to change your life. 
And Elise, I mean, she knows the reality of the world. What are you talking about? How am I going to study? I don't even have money for college. Let's say I get into college. Who's going to pay for it? So at first, Elise graduates high school and becomes a nurse, like an assistant. And it was rough. She said she loved being able to help people, but it was um, it was tough on her psychologically. So they had all this training that you had to get through to how not to get attached to your patients. Because if you're an emotional wreck, you can't help people. But everything changed when her first patient died on her. She just... She couldn't do it. She was like, I can't stop thinking about this person. I feel like I did something wrong. I have to overthink every single step of my life that I ever did. What if it was my fault in some indirect, weird way? So she eventually quits and she decides, I got to go to law school. This is it for me, law school. But how am I going to pay my tuition? That was her main concern. She's thinking about how do I pay for my tuition? She had already gotten out of her old town. She had moved into the big city, but she's got no money. Now, in that same exact city, there was someone who... Money was no concern for them. This guy's name is Marcos Matsunaga. Now, Marcos, again, there's not a lot on his childhood other than his grandpa had immigrated from Japan to Brazil, and they are one of the richest families in Brazil after immigrating. It's like a rags to riches type of story. So Marcos, it said, worked and studied really hard growing up. He valued hard work. I mean, he didn't really have a choice. So from the minute that he was born, Marcos was being trained to take over the family company. Yoki Food Company. It was founded by Marcos' grandfather. It went on to become one of the largest food companies in Brazil. They made tons of snacks, dry market foods What's like popcorn. Company? But it's owned by uh, General Mills now. Uh. And that's kind of important to the story. So General Mills bought Yoki for about a billion dollars. General Mills is the company that makes most of the cereals. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So they bought Yoki Foods. So Yoki Foods, they had popcorn, seasonings, grains, soy beverages, snacks. I mean, this is no small company. Mm-hmm. They had more than 5,000 employees. The family, if they were to sell the shares in the company, it would amount to almost a billion dollars which they later do. And Marcos was going to be the leader of it. He was going to be the heir to the whole company. Not only was he family, not only was he the next extension of CEO, but he was really good. I mean, he kind of reminds me of Aldo from the House of Gucci story. He had expanded Yoki in the span of 11 years to be 10 times its size. So the guy is smart. Like the guy is not just like, this rich person who is getting everything spoon-fed to him. I mean, a little bit, but he, he's somewhat smart. So Elise and Marcos, they meet. And it's kind of mysterious how they met. I mean, Marcos just starts introducing her to all of his friends and family. Didn't really tell them who she was, how they met, where they met, nothing. Just, hey guys, it's my new girlfriend, Elise. Nobody asked questions. I mean, nobody thought that they would actually get serious. I mean, his friend said, and I quote, it's the whole stereotype thing. Okay, let me explain. Marcos was not the most conventionally attractive person. He was a little bit older. Um, I guess just just doesn't fit conventional, ooh, so hot type standards, right? Which, who even defines that? But Elise, she was younger. She was very petite, blonde, you know. Just, they thought it was a fling. Mm. They thought, okay, he's just, you know, messing with some young girls now, but eventually he's going to get over it. The two came from completely different backgrounds that's what the friends knew is elise did not come from money suddenly she's being swept into this life going on lavish vacations out of the country going to fancy museums but the more that the friends saw them together i mean it made sense they had some common interests they both loved hunting hunting they loved it okay it was a lot they would go hunting in indigenous villages together they have a lot of uh pictures that are Questionable, I have nothing against hunting. I really don't, especially if people do it sustainably. Like a lot of indigenous Native Americans do it sustainably. They use every part of the animal. It's a lot more sustainable than traditional going to Whole Foods, buying a pack of meat. But their pictures are questionable, that's for sure. Like they would put the rifle on the antlers of the deer, the dead deer that they're just holding up. Mm-hmm. And they would pose next to it. It was a lot. They had taxidermy deers in their house. I mean, it's just intense. And people were coming around to Elise, all the friends and family. They were talking to her and realizing, oh, she's not just a pretty face. She's kind of smart. She's finishing law school. She's very determined. And eventually, Marcos decides, I got I to gotta marry this girl. So he starts showering Elise with all of his attention, like just going in on her. And sometimes it's a bit much. If she had a study group for law school, he would always ask, are there going to be men there? I mean, 
I, I don't know, Marcos. I, I guess my male classmates might be there because I can't control what kind of classmates are in my law school class, right? I can't avoid all men. Oh, okay, Elise, well, have fun. But he would call every 30 minutes. Every 30 minutes. I didn't even get this treatment from my mom when I was like in middle school. Every 30 minutes. And Elise would beg all the guys in her class, Psh, can you just not talk? Like, because the minute that he hears your voice, it's going to be a whole thing. Just, can you just, for two seconds. Then he'd pick up. Hello? Who the hell are you with? Oh, I, I'm with my friend Sandra. Okay, we'll put Sandra on the phone so I can talk to her. Like, he was that toxic husband that wanted to talk to her friends. Like, send proof mm -hmm. as if he's a parent. I mean, it's weird. So the two get married and all of Marcos's friends were impressed by him. His family thought this is the one for him. He loved Elise so much. He treated her like a queen. He would pull out her chair for her to sit down every single day, even at home. She had everything that she wanted financially, the newest handbags. He showered her in gifts. I mean, Marcos was a good spender, a great consumer, one might say. They had over $500,000 worth of wine in their home wine cellar, over a quarter million dollars of Cuba's most expensive cigars. And they were kind of eccentric. They weren't just rich, rich. They were eccentric and rich. They were strange. They had this pet snake that they named Gigi. And in a lot of home videos they would film, uh, they would feed Gigi various mice and they would just comment on the mice. Like what? Like it's Animal Planet. Like, oh, look at the mice. Oh, it just peed in the corner. Oh, don't worry. This one's not too big for Gigi. She's going to go in for the kill. Like Animal Planet style. This would later, of course, bother a lot of people that the couple had snakes and they were also fine with feeding the snake mice without feeling bad. Inside of their apartment, they had guns, rifles scattered everywhere. Inside of a hidden room in their apartment, they had over a quarter million dollars worth of guns and ammo. So they're just living this weird life, okay? Afterwards, after the marriage, Elise starts trying to get pregnant. She stops taking the pill, and she thought it would happen very naturally, but it didn't. So they start going to doctor's appointments, infertility treatments. And like a lot of couples who go through this, Elise said it was it was rough. It was so tough. She was the one taking all the hormones, undergoing a ton of different treatments. She was emotional because every single time she had high hopes that this would be the time that she would get pregnant, but it wouldn't. And she'd be unstable. She was emotional, just upset. And then in 2010, she finds out her worst nightmare. Marcos, her wonderful husband, is freaking cheating on her. So she finds out in a really traumatic way too. So she goes on vacation with Marcos and she asks him, hey babe, do you want to take a shower with me? He's like, nah, I'll take one later. So she hops into the shower. When she gets out, he's not in the room. Why is he not in the hotel room? But she hears something ringing. It's a Skype call from a woman. Who the hell is that? She doesn't pick up, but she proceeds to go through their whole chat log and the two of them had been seeing each other. And it's just like this gut-punching feeling and she waits. She's like seething. She's literally boiling, waiting for him to get back so she confronts him. And he says, you guessed it. It's not what it looks like. It's a work thing. And she's like, are you, are you an idiot? I read the chat history. Don't even lie to me. She was so shocked. She never imagined in a million years that her husband could do something like this. She always read about it like, oh, those poor women. But not Marcos, not her husband. So she immediately calls her attorney right then and there for a divorce. I'm getting a divorce. That's it. That's final. Mm -mm, this doesn't fly where I come from. I don't care if you think you have money and that's why you can cheat. No, I don't care. I'm leaving you. I want a divorce. So as she's trying to contact her attorney and do all of this for the next couple of days, in the middle of all of this, she starts feeling all lightheaded. She starts feeling all nauseous. She's freaking pregnant. What? After years of trying, nothing was working. And the minute that she finds out that her husband is cheating on her and she's trying to get a divorce, she finds out that she's pregnant. And Marcos gets on his knees and he's apologizing. Baby, I'll never do it again. Come on, we got to start this family together, please. I'll do anything. Did she truly forgive him? I don't know. She said that she did. She truly believed, though, that he would keep his word, especially now that they were going to have this beautiful daughter together. So she gives birth. And they were so happy for six months. 
and then they just start arguing again, like a lot. I mean, the way that Marcos would talk to her was strange now. She said it was distant. It wasn't respectful and it wasn't admiring as it usually is. He never wanted to be home. He never wanted to spend time with his wife or his child. She literally had to beg him to come spend time with his own child. He just he wasn't even just busy from work. She felt like he didn't love her. So they start seeking outside help for their marriage. They have a counselor, a spiritual counselor, a reverend, and potentially they were looking into a therapist, but it's not going well. Elise just wasn't trusting him. He kept telling her, you made me a man. We have to forget what happened. So he's like, forget the affair. You got to forget it so we can move on. I feel like this is so relatable for a lot of couples who had infidelity issues, but she would accuse him of having another affair because she's, I don't know, traumatized. So if he comes home a little late, yeah, she's a bit on edge. And instead of being patient with her, he would start calling her crazy. You're lying. You're making this shit up in your head. You're insane. You see things that aren't there because you're so paranoid. And Elise, on the other hand, is like, am I paranoid? You're the one that cheated. Am I going crazy? Like, am I being gaslit right now? <sighs> I feel so stressed. I feel like I'm in this relationship. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Why is this conversation getting to me? <laughs> 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 I'm looking at him with, I'm piercing him with my eyes right now. <laughs> so she does something that, you know, might sound a little crazy, but honestly, I feel for her. So she hires this private detective and she leaves town to go visit her grandma, who was sick at the time and this is perfect. While I'm gone, the private detective will be watching Marcos to see if he really uses this as an opportunity to cheat on me. I mean, that makes sense. Literally, the first night that she's out of town, she gets a call. Hello? Listen, your husband just went out. He arrived at the hotel, picked up a woman, and they left to go together to a restaurant. Are you kidding me? I mean, she couldn't believe it. Is this seriously happening again? Are you, What? So she calls Marcos knowing all of this. Hey, honey, what are you doing? Oh, hey, babe, I'm just going to celebrate with the buyers because, you know, they closed the company's sale. So at this exact week that all of this is going on, they are in the process of selling Yoki Foods to General Mills. Dang. So this is the biggest transaction billion of this. dollar deal. A billion dollar deal. There's a billion dollars in the elevator. So she, he's just lying. He's like, yeah, I'm celebrating with the buyers because we closed the company's sale. She knows this is a lie, but she doesn't say anything. How does she know that's not the buyer? Uh, no, he was rubbing up on her. Yeah, oh. there's pictures of it. Just rubbing. There's videos. Just kissing, rubbing. Okay. The second night, it only gets worse. The PI calls again. He's at a Japanese restaurant now with the same woman. Which one? This was the worst news because it was the same restaurant that Elise and Marcos were regulars at. They were close with the chef. So this is blatant disrespect. It's not even like he's trying to hide the affair from people. He's trying to be discreet. He's literally showing everyone in the world, hey, I really don't care that I'm cheating on my wife. What are you going to do about it? So she's triggered. And on top of that, she's the one that introduced him to this Japanese restaurant. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. 
So she feels hurt. Then the PI tells her that this woman's name is Natalia and she is an escort. And the world felt like it was crashing down on her because her worst nightmares were coming true. It was happening to her. What happened to the first wife was happening to her. What? Marcos was married with a young daughter at home when Elise had met him working as an escort. He left his wife and child for Elise, and now Elise, with the young daughter at home, is going to be left for another escort. <laughs> so he had logged on to Marcos when he was with his first wife and his young daughter at home. He had logged on to one of his favorite websites called M-Class, a website for high-end escorts. And he sees Elise's pictures. He falls in love, requests her to meet at a hotel not too far from his work, and they hit it off. He hires her a few more times. They realize they have a ton in common and he offers her a deal. Get off the escort website. See me and only me full time and I'll pay all your bills. Later, his friends found out that he is dating an escort and they were upset. Yeah. Okay. So his friends are really weird people. I don't like them. They said um, they weren't upset because their good friend, their good old pal was hiring escorts, but that he dared to date one. It's like... Okay, very sexist. I want to punch them in the face. I mean, it's clear that if these are the people that he's hanging out with, maybe he doesn't have the best outlook on women, the way that they talk about them. They all actually had joined a forum, like a website, where they just rank escorts. And Marcos's name on that website was Whore Rider. So they date for a few years before Marcos divorces his first wife, moved in Elise, and now that she had his child, another daughter, she was the wife, he's going to get rid of her. And Natalia is the woman that he's seeing, was the escort that he's going to marry for the third time. He even gifted Natalia the same exact car that he gave Elise. I feel like that would mess with me. What's the car? It was like a, it was an armored Mitsubishi. Like armored, bulletproof what yeah because you know they are a billion dollar family oh so they gotta be careful Got just it. driving around in an armored mitsubishi but it's almost like screaming target yeah, yeah. <laughs> like hello but the same exact car it's not even about the car it's like the same one you couldn't even mm-hmm. get creative according to natalia marcos had told her that once the company is sold to general mills they are going to move to miami together and start a new life he hates elise he's scared of what she might do and they're always fighting so after finding all of the sound she packs her bags from her grandma's house and it's time to go back home and her whole plan was to not let marcos know that she knew she was just going to gather all these things from the pi take it to a divorce attorney get a fat settlement out of this i mean get the bag you deserve it elise right that seems normal every girl can get behind this every guy can get behind this until she gets back so she gets back to the airport marcos picks her up with their daughter and elise is just trying to be calm yeah what do, you, what do you guys want for dinner i mean i don't really feel like cooking maybe we should order pizza Okay, sounds good. But by the time that they get to the apartment and before the pizza is even delivered, a fight starts. Elise noticed that Marco seemed nervous. He comes back and he says, hey, uh, I just got off the phone and after we finish dinner, I got to go to my dad's house. And she just, she didn't want to say anything, but just sitting there looking at this guy blatantly lying to her when she knows damn well he's going to go see his mistress and not go to his dad's house. She wanted to hold it together, but she couldn't. She just looked at him and said, stop lying. Stop lying. I know you're not going to your dad's. Stop lying. What are you talking about, Elise? What do you, what do you mean? I know everything. You're a liar. I hired a detective. I know you're not going to your dad's. So right at that moment, the pizza gets delivered. They're waiting at the bottom. They can't go all the way up. It's a luxury apartment condo. So he's like, well, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go get the pizza. The CCTV footage shows Marcos going downstairs in the elevator to get the pizza. And the man's looked nervous. He looked stressed. He looked like he's going to go through it. He comes back upstairs with the pizza. And this time was very different from the first time he cheated. Marcos did not get on his knees. He didn't beg her to stay. She kept accusing him of lying. And at first he tried to gaslight her. And when it didn't work, Elise said that he told her, Do you think someone with your reputation will ever find Prince Charming? I know men. You will only find guys who will use you for your pussy. You think I'm your dad? I'm not a bum. I took you out of the trash. And according to Elise, he slapped her across the face. 
He even allegedly threatened to tell everyone that she was crazy. So this seems to be a running trend in this relationship where every time they get into fights, he threatens to have her committed to an institution to live out her days. What? So Elise had reached out to their reverend before and told them what happened. And she said she was terrified. What if he does admit me? Would you help me? Can you tell them that I'm not crazy? And Marcos, on the other hand, tells the reverend already found an institution for her. Like anytime she acts up, I'm just going to stick her in there. And the reverend is like, whoa, 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 instead of that, why don't you just get an outpatient psychiatrist that can prescribe her medicine to try and calm her down? Okay, the reverend's weird on this one because what? Or does he just think all women are hysterical and she just needs meds for being mad and like being justifiedly angry with her husband? I don't know. It's weird. So Elise claims she said, I just want to go back to my hometown. I want to divorce you and I want to go live with my parents. I hate you. Okay. Go, but don't you dare take my daughter with you. You leave her here because if you go and take her with you, you'll end up being shot. You won't even see it. That's what Elise claims Marcos had said. I mean, the marriage had kind of been on the rocks for a while. He just wasn't interested. This is the same guy. Marcos had reached out to all of his old buddies that he had kind of distanced himself from during the marriage because, you know, you move on. You have family, you have kids. Maybe you just don't have time. He's running a multi-billion dollar company. And he had told he told the friends, hey, I want to reconnect. I just want to hang out again like old times. But when they invited him, he never showed up. May of 2012, it hit the news. Yoki executive Marcos Catano Matsunaga is missing. I mean, this is the heir of one of the biggest food companies in Brazil. Let's be real. The first thing on everybody's mind is the guy's been kidnapped. There's going to be a ransom coming in because Yoki is about to close a billion dollar deal. Someone out there wants a chunk of that billion. Maybe it's a business deal gone bad. An envious business partner who feels cheated out of this General Mills deal. Maybe someone who doesn't want the General Mills deal to go on. Maybe it's of a family member. We don't know what goes on. Look at House of Gucci. It's crazy. Everyone and anyone is trying to help the police locate Marcos. And Marcos's family, they were so concerned. I mean, this is one of the most important weeks of their lives for their family business. Literally a billion dollars on the line. Where the hell is he? So Elise tells Marcos' cousin, well, he left home on Sunday to go to a meeting with a person from General Mills. He straight up told me, look, honey, I have a meeting and it might be long, so I may not come home because the next morning I have another important meeting at the company. I might just sleep in the office. Well, did you guys fight or something? No, I'm just so anxious because he hasn't come home. Have you guys heard from him? Has anyone from the family heard from him? I I need my husband. And then Elise goes to Marco's parents' house and she does something very different from what she did with the cousin. So with the cousin, she's sitting there all like, have you seen him? He told me he's going to a meeting. Oh my God, where's my Marcos? But she sits down with Marco's parents and she tells them the truth. She pushes in a tape to the TV and presses play. And it's the video the private detective took of Marcos having an affair. I mean, well, not actually doing it. It wasn't an R-rated movie, but it was the PI following them around, rubbing up on each other all over town at restaurants outside of hotels i mean it's clear he's having an affair elise i I mean the family was so shocked the first thing that marcos's mom did and i know it's crazy because we always imagine these rich families to be balls to the walls crazy but marcos's mom was devastated she looked up at elise with tears in her eyes and said i'm sorry that's not how i raised my son and they said whatever you need we will help you do you know what happened? She says, yes, I mean, I, I confronted him with this and he, he packed his bags, took some cash and left. Well, the family, I mean, they were upset. They've got so much business going on. Elise, I mean, they thought Marcos was obsessed with Elise. This None of this made sense. He was head over heels for her. He loved her. How is he cheating on her? And on top of that, they've got this business deal. And now Marcos is out there with a bag of cash forking his mistress. They're upset, they're disappointed in their son, they're, they're disgusted by all of this. So three days after Marcos vanishes, Elise goes to an attorney, not the one that she usually goes to, I think maybe that one has connections with the rest of the family, but a mm-hmm. different one. And she tells them the whole story of how Marcos vanished. Well, where was he last seen? Uh, leaving our apartment? Well then, of course, that's where the police will start their investigation, at your apartment. Okay, um, if they show up at our place, can I, can I call you? Of course, I'm here to help, but don't you already have a lawyer? Yes, but I, I just want someone there. I just want someone there with me. So it's a little weird 
And then a few days after that, an email comes in to Marcos's brother. And all it said was, please tell Elysia and my mom that I'm fine. I just can't talk right now. Signed, Marcos. And this is a relief to everyone, especially Elise. She starts slowly feeling a little bit more relaxed. She's been anxious this entire time. Okay, good. At least now we know that he's alive, right? At least he's out there somewhere. I mean, it's heartbreaking because he's out there with his mistress, but better than being kidnapped for ransom. Then about 20 miles from San Paolo City, in a city called Cochia, police were called out to the side of a road. They had found something strange. There were two garbage bags. Okay, not that suspicious, but in one of them, you know, there were some clothes that, had, that were covered in blood. There were pants and shirts in there. Okay, now it's getting a bit alarming. The police opened up the, a second bag, and there was a whole leg, a whole foot. Okay, well, we got to search this entire place. Let's go. An hour later, they find another leg, then a torso. They were all wrapped up in blue garbage bags. I mean, it's clear that it was from the same person, but who? I mean, they knew this person was extremely pale, considering they were in Brazil. Someone with well-groomed nails. They said it looked like this person hadn't, hadn't jabbed a toenail in their entire life. Just lived a good life. With this part of the city, Cochia, I mean, that's not very common. Mm. It looked like they didn't work on their feet. Again, not common in this part of the city. Their clothes were designer. Ralph Lauren shirt, diesel pants, designer underwear. The pants alone were what most people in this town made in a month's work. So this is, that's a lot of money for a pair of pants. The police did not know who the victim was, but I mean, they knew they needed to do the best that they could on this case because whoever it was, was freaking rich. And they're terrified. This was murder. This was dismemberment. I mean, of what we can only imagine as a very rich man. So when they gathered all the thrown limbs together, they realized another strange detail. The cuts were clean. Whoever did this knew what they were doing to some degree. It wasn't a jagged, rushed dismemberment. It wasn't, you know, a crime of passion. And I'm like, oh, I got to dismember this body, which I mean, you would never think that, right? <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. I got to dismember this body. What do I do? I don't even know the first place to start. Let me just grab a kitchen knife and just do what I can. It wasn't something like that. It seemed like this person had some extra knowledge of anatomy or how to debone and dismember bodies, which is a very limited number of people. It wasn't, it was a crime of rage, yes. Someone who knew the victim, who despised them, but had some sort of knowledge. So it's not clear who this person is yet, the victim. The police want to find a hand or the head for fingerprints or dental records or even a facial sketch. Day by day, it seems like they're trying to complete this little puzzle. And finally, the arm and the head are recovered. There's a bullet on the side of the head. I mean, yes, they already knew it was murder, but now they know the cause of death. And the fingerprints were not in good shape to run through the system. So just by looking at the face, it's clear this is an Asian man. And that's the first connection between the two completely separate, unrelated police investigations. The disappearance of Marcos Matsunaga and the dismemberment of John Doe in the woods had finally come together and they realized Marcos Matsunaga has been murdered and dismembered in the woods. I just want to put a side note of the medical examiner working on this case. When I tell you every single person in this case was bizarre, this is what I mean. The medical examiner was interviewed for the docuseries, and he adds more strangeness to the whole story. He has a whole spiel about doing autopsies, and he says, and I quote, people are always more beautiful on the inside than out. Of course, I would never go around cutting people open. I only do it because it's my job. But people are more beautiful on the inside than out, and that is the truth. Just a random commentary. Yeah, just your organs are prettier than your face, boo-boo. Like that type of commentary. But of course, I want to go digging around for your organs. But I do because it's my job. It's just that's how he started his interview. I was like, okay, there's a lot of weird characters in this one. And then the news breaks. The body was formally identified to be Marcos Matsunaga, the heir to the Yoki group that was just sold. Yes, they finished the transaction to General Mills for almost a billion U.S. dollars. Marcos was one of the wealthiest businessmen in the entire country. So yeah, there was a ton of pressure on the cops to solve the case. There was a ton of press attention. There was a ton of mystery and conspiracy. So the police asked Marcos' brother. He's the one that had to ID Marcos' body. Is your brother married? Yes. What does the wife do? Uh, she went to law school and now she's studying wine. What about before they were married? She was a nurse. Oh, a nurse. A nurse, you say? 
Now, I don't know if maybe Marcos's brother was just unsettled by this conversation or if he wanted to help the investigation in general, but he goes to Elisa's and Marco's apartment with his business partners, with the police, and they look for any CCTV or clues to who might have done this to him. They start combing through every single second of every single frame of footage that they had in this entire luxury complex building. So we see Elise, the daughter, Marcos, and their nanny get into the elevator with all of the bags because, you know, Elise had gotten to see her grandma. They get up to their floor, they get out, and then eventually the nanny leaves. She's, you know, been sent off to go. Then Marcos gets into the elevator, goes all the way down, picks up a pizza, and the clothes he's wearing when he picks up the pizza are the same ones that are found in the garbage bags. So he's seen bringing the pizza upstairs. And now this is what gets interesting. The police go through everything. They did not find a single frame of Marcos leaving the building. After he brings the pizza up, that's it. No sign of Marcos anywhere. So the police are thinking, bingo, what happened after he got the pizza upstairs? Only Elise knows. So the police pull cell phone data from Elise's phone and her phone pinged at the exact time at the exact place that the body was found at the exact time that a witness came forward and said, hey, I saw someone throwing trash bags into the woods. <laughs> okay. So they confront her with this. They confront her with the phone. They confront her with the security footage of their apartment elevator. And uh, they find one. You know, they kind of show her stills of an exact frame. And it's not Marcos with the pizza. No, it's of her the next day after the pizza night. Before noon, Elise is seen entering the elevator with three giant suitcases. And every suitcase, she's hurtling and sweating to get into the elevator. What's in the suitcase, Elise? When she gets back home, guess what? No suitcases. Why, where did you leave your suitcases? I mean, that's an abnormal thing to do. Who just, in the middle of the day, picks up three suitcases, fills it with something heavy, and then gets rid of it. That's not a good way to throw out trash. Did you have trash? So the police tell her, listen, you don't have to say anything. But we will charge you for murder. We know you did it. You know you did it. You're just going to make us work a little bit harder. That's all. Elise calls her lawyers. She gets thrown into the police station jail all night. And the next day, she wants to make a full confession. And she sits down. This is all recorded. She said that while they were eating pizza, Elise brought it up again. The fact that he was having an affair. And he kept calling her, you're literally crazy. And it escalated and escalated. And finally, he stood up and he slapped her across the face. And he had never done something like that before. And he just kept denying it with so much confidence. He kept portraying me as a villain. And I, I was just like, what the hell is happening? Am I going crazy? All I remember is going into the cabinet and grabbing my other gun. He had never slapped me before. So I was scared of what he might do, what else he was capable of. So I grabbed the gun and I was going to walk back out to where he was in the dining room. But halfway through in the hallway, I was like, Am I crazy? What am I doing? Why am I grabbing a gun? This is bizarre. This is gnarly. So I was walking back to put the gun away. And then he showed up. He saw that I had a gun. And he screamed at me. Turn around. Shoot me. Shoot me, you coward. Shoot me or else get out of here and go back to your hometown to your shitty family. And leave my daughter here. Do you think any judge will grant custody to a whore? And he started walking towards me. And I couldn't take it anymore. The police asked, couldn't you have just left the house? I could have done a lot of things. I could have kept my mouth shut. I shouldn't have said anything about the PI. I shouldn't have said that I should. I could have done a million things. I mean, but I just wasn't myself at that moment. I don't know. I wasn't myself. I hadn't slept in two days. The PI kept calling me. I couldn't take it anymore. And so I shot him. Then I dragged him to a bedroom. And then I had the unfortunate idea of dismembering him. If it was a crime of passion, why did you dismember him? Why didn't, I, why didn't you call the cops? Well, he was dead in a pool of his own blood because of me. I, I wanted to call the police, but I knew I'd be arrested right then and there, and I didn't want to be taken away from my daughter. And so, yeah, the unfortunate idea of dismembering him came to me. I started to cut him up. So the, the police were wrong. This wasn't the nurse in Elise. It was the hunter in Elise. So she felt cornered. She shot, she killed, and now she was prepping her game. She knew how to skin animals, how to debone them, how to dismember them, how to get rid of their blood. She knew how to do all of this. Ironically, Marcus was the one that taught her how to do all of this and even gifted her the gun that she used on him that night. He's the one that taught her how to shoot. And Elise was very good at hunting. Marcus's friend would even say, sexistly, for a woman, she was a great shot. 
Now, the police aren't very happy with this statement because they felt like she was, what she was saying just wasn't adding up to the forensics. So they charged her not only with first degree murder, but with foul motive, meaning she did this for money, and cruel means, aka dismembering the body, which means that she is, she's just an evil person. So this is like the harshest punishment she can get if convicted, which is 30 years in Brazil. I mean, it's clear that she did it, but why? It didn't make sense. Yoki Food Company was about to sell for a billion dollars, money that Marcos would inherit quite a large chunk of. Why did she not just wait a week? Mm-hmm. Why did, I mean, even if it, she did have a prenup, which it didn't seem like she did, she would have gotten a big sum of money from him with this payday, especially with the footage of him cheating. And it seemed like his family was backing her. You know, she would have been able to raise her child, co-parent, live well, never work another day in her life. So it's a question of, did she actually fear for her life or was this something she came up with to justify the murder? Are we all idiots for thinking money had anything to do with it? And is she just a scorned woman who wanted to kill? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Now, of course, Marcus's friends and family don't buy her story. A lot of his friends had known him for over 25 years, and they say that they had never seen him once lose his cool, even yell at someone, ever get violent. They said Marcos is the type that would just get quiet when he's mad. But again, these are the same friends that said, for a woman, she's a great shot. <laughs> so I don't know. And your friends really don't know you unless you're in like a heated romantic relationship. Everything changes. You're just not the same person. So as she's awaiting trial, which takes four years since her arrest, the trial's in 2016, she's in prison, she's facing 6 to 12 years in prison, or at the max, 30 years. And all of it was relying on the fact that um, the cruel way, they, the, the prosecutors claim she tortured him. So you're thinking, well, she shot him. Yes, it's cruel. Yes, it's evil. But is that necessarily torture? Because we've covered a lot of cases where there's a lot of gruesome, prolonged deaths murders i mean this is a whole debate so this is where the prosecutor stands they say that there was a lot of blood in his lungs meaning that when she dismembered him his heart was still somewhat pumping but he was brain dead so then the defense argument was if we go by the prosecution standard of quote alive then all organ donors who were brain dead but their blood was still somewhat pumping at that time those would have been dismemberments while alive so where do you cross the line mm-hmm. do you want to set a new precedent for what is alive and what is dead for this case or are we just going to go with what medically speaking everybody goes with so that was the biggest debate So the prosecutors, their theory, their trial strategy, their whole aim was to initially prove her story false. And it all centered around the gunshot to the head. She claimed it was in self-defense. She shot him and he had approached her, but it was about six feet apart. That's what Elise said, which typically the closer the victim is to the perpetrator, the easier it is to argue self-defense. So six feet is quite a ways away. Six feet? Yeah. It's like right there. I mean, but it's not like, you know what I mean? Self-defense is truly, you really can't run, like last resort. You can't just shoot people because you're like, they were six feet away from me, you know? Okay. That's that's social distancing. (laughs) So the first issue that the prosecutor had was that the gunshot was aimed upwards in his head. Yes, he was shot in his head, but more so as if he were crouched down in a defensive position or even sitting down. Elise was five feet tall. Marcos was around 5'9". If it happened exactly the, the way that she said, then the shot would have been upwards. She's shorter. But it was downwards. Oh, yeah, that's weird. How did that happen? So Elysian, the defense, claimed that uh, potentially he was crouching while approaching her. 
kind of leaned down to approach her, which seems defensive, right? But you could also interpret it as he was ready to pounce. You know, it's it's so bizarre. This whole case, I mean, you just keep going back and forth. Like at one time, I'm like, Team Elise, and then the other time, I'm like, uh, she's weird. She's guilty. Another issue the prosecutor had with this whole story that Elise gave them was Elise claimed they were about six feet away from each other when she shot him. Now, if you shoot someone from that far, they will have an entry wound, which essentially means, oh, that's where the bullet went in. But Marcos had more than that. He had burn marks around the entry wound, which typically only happens in close distance shootings because your skin is so close to the barrel of the gun, your skin will literally burn and it might have this tattoo mark. The furthest distance that specific gun can leave a mark like that is about 20 inches, definitely not six feet. So with these things in mind, the prosecution introduced their version of events. Alizi waited till Marcos went to get the pizza and ambushed him right as he opened the door, held a gun to his head. He crouched down because if someone has a gun to your head, your first instinct is to kind of crouch down, like put your hands in the air, like, ah, what are you doing? And when he crouches down, his head is down and she shoots him. Well, why? The prosecutors think the motive is she comes from a rough background. She got an opportunity to marry Rich. But when she finds out that things aren't going her way, she was too used to this life to go back. She turned into a violent, dangerous person. Cough, cough. The prosecutors are saying she's a freaking gold digger. Elise says this is absolutely not true. And this is the part where I think every person is such a such a bizarre person. I mean, you would just think if you're on the stand for murder, people are accusing you of being this evil person. You would just say, that's not true. I loved him. But instead, she said, that's not true. If I wanted to kill him, I would have done it when we went hunting. We go to this indigenous village all the time. I could have just shot him there. It would be so much easier. I would never have done it in my own house. About the gold digging comments, she said, having your bills paid helps you smile. It helps a lot, but it doesn't guarantee happiness. It really doesn't. So her attorney argued it would not have been gold diggery for her to kill him because nobody kills the goose that lays the golden eggs. Mm -hmm. Nobody. It would be dumb too. She would have gotten a lot more out of continuous child support payments and alimony. Now, the trial itself was super sexist, with everyone framing Elise to be a gold digger and escort. Her former escort ad pictures were front pages of newspapers for weeks. Nobody cared that Marcos was seeking escorts. Everyone cared that Elise was a former escort at one point in her life. They cared that she came from a humble background and married someone rich. How dare she? You know, how dare she? And how dare she kill him? How dare she do anything negative to him? He saved her. The fact that they had a pet snake. So, you know, those home videos, the jury, the public, they were upset that Elise wasn't screaming and squealing like a lot of women might. You know, if you see a mice get strangled to death by a snake, you might scream a little. You might be like, ah, but Elise didn't. So they tried to paint her as this heartless, cruel person. But to be fair, she is a hunter. Yeah. Like she's not going to be like, oh, my God. She's a hunter. So when the police are talking about the guns the couple had in the secret room, the police chief says, and I quote, we were so excited when we walked in there with all those guns. It's like woman walking into a shoe store. (laughs) Ah, yes. Forget pistols. I love some stilettos. That's what gets my blood pumping. I've never been in a store filled with pumps and boots and not have been drooling. It's just, I mean, this is so sexist. The whole thing is so sexist. Even these side comments just show you it's incredibly gross over, you know, this whole trial. During the trial, Marcos was re-victimized. So this is a situation that happens to women all the time. When a woman is a victim of a crime of any, any history or any past of this woman, this victim that's slightly scandalous is going to get brought up. Now, that's the kind of thing that happened to Marcos. So it's this whole debate in the press of, is it okay? Like, because it happens to women, should it also happen to men? Or what's not okay is not okay, regardless of the gender. But it was a bit wild. So they kept bringing up the forum that he raided escorts. His username was Ryder. And uh, even on the day that he was murdered, he used it, which a lot of women in the public did not like. So even till the day that he died, he's cheating on his wife. He would rate women on their service, how they are in bed, and he would rate their physical bodies. He would give them like a number, like a scale, like he's on a Yelp review, like ambiance, four out of five, you know, food, three out of five. Like what? Also, do you guys want to rate this podcast on Apple Podcast? I'm kidding. Because <laughs> I would give it a five out of five if I were you. Uh, 
<laughs> so the way that the sentencing would work is that the jury goes back with their opinion and the judge sentenced Elise. So the jury comes back and they say that she did not commit murder with foul motive, nor did she do it with cruelty. They're not saying she didn't commit murder. She did. But they're saying, we don't know if it's self-defense, but it definitely wasn't like this premeditated, evil, cruel, torturous murder that the prosecutor is trying to have. The prosecutors wanted the max, which was 30 years, but she could technically be walking out that day after serving only about five years. It was up to the judge. And the judge completely threw the book at her. Um, a lot of people believe that this had to do with money and power because of the Matsunaga family had a lot of money and power. And typically with things like this, when the jury goes one way, the judge kind of goes with them. But the judge threw the book at her, gave her 20 years in prison. It's not the max, but I mean, a lot of people are upset. Half of the people that were watching this trial wanted her to go free. This is obviously, yes, he's not physically abusive, but this is psychological abuse that she had suffered. She'd been isolated from her friends and family. She literally couldn't even hang out with male classmates at law school. Look at the way that his friends talk about women. They're raiding women. I mean, look at the way that he, they treat women. This is clear. There was some sort of psychological abuse happening. And sure, maybe it's not the most clean cut self-defense case, but she tried. They were upset. Others wanted her to get the max. They were like, this is a gold digger. She took this opportunity. Sure, maybe she wasn't thinking smartly about how to get all this money, but she was pissed. She, there was no way that her golden goose was going to spread his wings with another person, with another woman. She wanted all of that to herself. She felt betrayed, so she killed him. She's a black widow. That's what everyone was saying. So this, this is not the max. They were upset. Everybody was upset. Either you wanted her to get 30 years or you wanted to get none. Nobody wanted her to get 20. It was just... What is this middle ground? So she gets sent off to prison. And in Brazil, the prison system is interesting. They have something called temporary release where inmates can participate. They, you have to be qualified, but you're entitled to one week of freedom five times a year. And this is essentially to help you re-socialize. That's part of the rehabilitation. What if in 20 years you get out and you have no idea how to interact with people? It's too much freedom all at once and you start reoffending again. So she's arrested in 2012. She was finally let out in 2019. And she did this Netflix docu-series on her furlough. She said that the main reason she wanted to do it was she wanted her daughter to hear her version of events because she's not allowed to see her. She's being raised by the Matsunaga family. And at all the time that this went down, what were you thinking? That's what they asked her. She said, well, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was feeling really confused. I would sit at the dinner table, stare at Marcos's seat and wish that all of this wasn't true, that he would just be there. Even if we were fighting, it'd be fine. I still have dreams of his severed head covered in blood talking to me. I can't tell you what kind of emotion made me pull the trigger, but there were so many emotions through me that day. I was feeling angry, I was feeling scared, and I was feeling relieved to know that I wasn't crazy. Marcos's family said that they will never recover. His uh, loved ones have panic attacks, they have trust issues. The main thing is they can't get over that Elise kept looking for him, kept asking them for help and finding him kept coming over with all of these things, showing them the video of her cheating, of him cheating. And they took her side. They straight up told her, don't worry, we'll have your back. We're going to help you. She manipulated everyone. Now, it's so hard to trust anyone. I never thought that she'd be able to do something like this. I just kept thinking, how can someone be so manipulative? One thing that I thought was very bizarre was that she made a bit of a speech about murder victim awareness. <laughs> In the docuseries, I tell you, these people are something else. So they said, do you have any last words? You know, you're thinking and I'm thinking, I'm so sorry for what I did. I feel remorse for Marco. She said, in prison, there are crimes that I learned about that are a lot more barbaric than mine. But we're not talking about it because the victims are poor. If it were me that were murdered and Marcos the killer, would there be spotlights on him? Would people be interested in my life, the victim's life? Or maybe not, because I'm poor. They wouldn't have cared this much. Is that a problem in the world? Yes. Do I think Elise should be the advocate poster child for this specific problem? No, Elise. What are you saying? You're insane. That sounds, that sounds gnarly, no? What are, you, what are you saying? Yeah. She's like, what if it were me that were murdered instead of me murdering and dismembering my husband? What if it were me? Would you even care if it were me? 
if I were the victim, it's like a little <laughs> weird. Uh, I mean, the whole mindset is bizarre. <laughs> and she's like, if I were the one that died, instead of me being the one to shoot and dismember my husband, would you still care about me? Eat the rich that I was a part of till I murdered my husband. But anyway, I mean, the whole thing is bizarre. All I know is this entire crime has been the embodiment of confusion for me. I, I don't particularly know where I stand. I don't have a strong opinion. Typically with crimes, I try not to because... I know nothing at the end of the day. I know absolutely nothing other than murder is bad. Don't murder people. Other than that, I do feel like this is how most crimes in the real world works. You don't really know who to believe. Maybe Marcos did abuse her. I mean, we have evidence he might have been maybe verbally abusive. Definitely not the best husband in the world. He was cheating, but that doesn't mean he deserved any part of it, right? And yeah, maybe we should ask ourselves, do you think things would have been different if Marcos wasn't rich? Because we do have to remember that he is, he's Asian, you know, he's a person of color. And if Elise wasn't a pretty white woman, would things have been different for her as well? And if you were Elise's child, would you ever be able to forgive your mom for something like this? Because that's the whole point of the Netflix doc. She wants her daughter's forgiveness. What are your thoughts on this case? I mean, bizarre. Every single person involved is so bizarre. it's like a part of me wants to say it's self-defense, but it's so not clean cut. And self-defense, I mean, by book is truly your life is at risk in that very moment. I don't know. What are your thoughts? And I hope you guys enjoyed. And I will see you guys this Sunday for the mini-sode. And I'll be there. And I'll see you guys. Bye.